Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, we spoke with the leaders of Indivisible, an organization leading the resistance to Donald Trump. We talked about gender equality with a leading female computer programmer, and we learned why Jane Addams shouldn't be used to sell hotel rooms. All this, plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for October 20th, 2017. Hitting Left spoke to Josh Fox and Jeff Radu from Indivisible Chicago about playing defense in the Trump era. Fox and Radu spoke about concrete steps people can take, about learning from the Tea Party, and whether or not Democrats really are the first-choice candidates to support. Hitting Left with the Klonsky Brothers airs every Friday at 11 a.m. Uh, Josh Fox, good morning. Good morning. Uh, tell us, uh, give us a brief intro to uh, Indivisible Chicago. Sure, sure. So um, Indivisible is a, a national grassroots movement that sprang up after the election and has really started all from this document that made its rounds on the internet called the Indivisible Guide, which is basically um, was written by a bunch of former congressional staffers outlining ways to take action to influence elected officials. Um, It's taking some of its cues from the Tea Party in the early days of the Obama administration, um, their tactics, not their politics, um, and obviously, um, it's been dubbed the Tea Party of the Left. Yeah, Is that accurate. Would you, uh, would you well, I think that they were very clear about that from the beginning. That that was their inspiration. Um, obviously, um, we're not into spitting on people and um, spreading racist ideologies. So guns to yeah. A so we're not the Tea some. Party in that way. Um, so uh, after this guide made its rounds on the internet, uh, thousands of groups sprang up around the country. I think everyone kind of collectively had this moment of uh, uh, dread for what they knew was about to come, which is what has happened, and was looking for uh, something to do to do about it. And this guide was very clear about some very practical things that you could do to, to try to make a difference. Uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff uh, how did you get involved in uh, Indivisible? Uh, I was one of the... Um classic couch-sitting Democrats that didn't really do very much uh, and, you know, voted, but, you know, maybe donated a little bit of money to campaigns, but really didn't do much past that. And then after the Trump election, that all changed. And I went in uh, to a fairly intense survivalist mode uh, immediately following the election. I was packing bags and sleeping bags and figuring out where I was going to go in the apocalypse. And then my wife... Where where were you going to go? We were going north. We were going north. We were going to Michigan. (laughs) Michigan. (laughs) Michigan, yeah. My wife's got a uh, a father, has a farm up there. You think it'll be safe? Up there in Michigan. I don't know. We, uh, we were just far. trying to figure out where we were going to go. Kim Jong Un and uh, Trump start firing missiles at each other. They'll, God help us all. They'll, they'll miss Michigan probably. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so in in lieu of you know, but going, you decided to stay. You decided to yeah, stay here with yeah. the rest of us. In lieu, of, together, yeah. in lieu of the survivalist, my wife slapped down the 26-page um, indivisible guide in front of me at dinner time and oh, said, you should her. read this. And I did. And that night was setting up 
Twitter handles and figuring out how to get our first meeting going down. I live in Beverly, um, so we were trying to figure out how our, how to get our first meeting going. Um, and since then, um, I've uh, transitioned to working with Indivisible Chicago uh, as an issue leader, and we identify uh, specific issues that we want to address uh, with state legislators. And uh, we were growing our legislator relations program uh, so that uh, Indivisible Chicago can be a political power base in the state. So, Jeff, were you always an organizer? Was this your first experience as a political organizer? As a political organizer, yeah. yes. As an um, organizer of people or a manager, no. I mean, I've been a manager of things in my various professions for a long time. And those skills translate uh, as far as being able to manage a, a, a team around a central goal uh, to, um, you know, make some changes so and I think you know Jeff's story is very exemplary of certainly a lot of the people involved in Indivisible Chicago and I think from what I gather in Indivisible groups all around the country where it's people who were kind of uh, theoretically or intellectually engaged but weren't active um, in in organizing Um, and that's really I think been the the story of indivisible is that there's this this whole crowd of people who have gotten involved in a way they never had before and we're learning skills um very quickly that um that that we didn't have uh josh how how is uh, indivisible Chicago organized. You have different chapters in yeah. different neighborhoods? Yeah. So, um, like I mentioned, after the guide came out, all these groups sprang up uh, spontaneously. and um, Spontaneously, that, really? Spontaneously, you- yeah. Mm-hmm. Just people getting together with their neighbors or their friends and saying, we need to do something. Um, so, groups sprang up all over the city. Uh, including in Lincoln Square, there was a group organized by a fellow named Jason Rieger. Um, and um, over the course of the first couple months, we all started to kind of get in contact with each other and form a network. So today, Indivisible Chicago is really a network of smaller groups operating in different neighborhoods, everywhere from down in Beverly to Oak Park to Hyde Park to Lincoln Square to Lincoln Park to Evanston. Um, and we're really getting our act together now and and learning how to operate um, as a unit. Each each group is dealing with things that are happening in their community, um, but we're also kind of learning how to form a, a Voltron together, if you will. Uh, Jeff, jump in here a second. Uh, uh, wait, wait, a Voltron? Yeah. Help me out. Welcome back to the 80s. Uh, Voltron Is that was like a, the Vulcan nerve pinch? No, Vulcan, <laughs> Voltron was a cartoon where each of the five characters had their own robot lion, and then they formed one big robot together, and they were much more powerful <laughs> when they hooked it. up. Okay. Yeah, I love yeah. it. <laughs> that was fantastic. <laughs> Thank you for, for the Voltron reference. <laughs> okay, uh, for, that's for all you Voltrons out here. We want you to rush and join in, uh, Indivisible. <laughs> I can give a call to action to the Voltrons, can I? Okay, we'll see. Uh, uh, Jeff, <laughs> uh, uh, tell us something about the political orientation about Indivisible. Is it is it just about Trump? I mean, is that is, is that what it, what this is all about, or well, do, is it something more than that? What are some of the what are some of the political issues or the 
your political orientation? Yeah, I, I would say that the genesis of all of it is to do with a reaction to Trump. He's the catalyst that got everybody activated behind this. The fact that he was able to get elected to president is is an incredibly uh, terrifying prospect, and now it's a reality, and we all have to figure out how to how to deal with that. I would say that as far as political orientation, um, you know, if you're signing up with the team to uh, resist the Trump and really what it is the Trump and GOP agenda that uh, our, our ideologies tend to uh, be more progressive and democratic. Um, I'm sure that there are, um, uh, that we've got a, a number of uh, independent and moderate Republicans that may be just so disgusted by Trump that they're participating with our group. But I, I would say overall, our, our team probably um, you know, sways to the left. Um, and as far as you know, issues that- sways, wait, 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 hold on a second. Sways to the left. Uh, I mean, we're hitting left here. On yeah, no, I mean, but I mean, what do you? Sure. How do you sway to the left? Uh, in what way? What, I, I guess like, I'm here. Let me put it a different way. Okay. How do you? How are you any different than the Democratic Party organization? This is a great question, and my response to this is is in two parts. We're different in that we're not um, an actual political party. We're a collective of individuals that are operating around um, general common goals. Um, but at the end of the day, there are two major power forces in the political uh, world of the United States, and it's the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And as far as I'm concerned, um, my ideology is mostly captured in um, the policies of the Democratic Party. And I do not share uh, the majority of policies sh shared by the Republican Party. And so I would say that we are Democrats and we are working to get Democrats elected because uh, that is the political party that is going to be able to um, get, uh, represent our values uh, the most. Uh, so, you know, when I'm out uh, advocating for our issues with our state legislators. Um, you know, I'm working as hard as I can to make sure that Democrats get elected in the state of Illinois. Uh, so we're not a part of the Democratic Party as far as an organization goes. Some of us have, there have been questions about is indivisible, you know, a, a, an, an arm of the Democratic Party. No, we're our own collective of people. But well, we not? are not advocating for Republican policies. Uh. Uh, I'll say yeah, I want to jump in here and, and just build on what Jeff said. Um, it, it's become clear to me, and I think a lot of us as we work together over the last 10 months, there's an incredible amount of diversity of point of view among people in Indivisible, particularly I'm, I'm only speaking really from experience about Indivisible Chicago. Um, what we share is a kind of common uh, uh, revulsion for this reactionary politics that's happening. Um, when you get down into the weeds and the details about what to do about it, um, I promise you that that there is a, a lot of diversity of opinion about that. And, and some of that comes down to how much we should support the Democratic Party, how much we should be involved with them. Um, but because you know the 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 level of how do, how do those differences get resolved uh, Josh um i think we don't resolve them there's there's so there's so much that's so obvious to fight against um that we actually don't for the most part need to get down into the weeds <laughs>
TechScene Chicago spoke to programmer Angela Lee, organizer of the Our Ladies Meetup. Lee talked about the environment for women in tech, what a supportive community looks like, and the backlash to the backlash that has roiled the technology industry. TechScene Chicago with Melanie Adcock airs every Friday at 1 p.m. Our next guest today is Angela Lee. She's here with us today to tell us about the Our Ladies Meetup group and their regularly scheduled tech meetings. Angela, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're so glad that you're here today. Um, now, I wanted to start out with, um, you know, asking you about R, because R, R is an open source computer programming language. It's used in statistics and data analysis. And I thought that um, you could help explain this a bit more for our listeners. It's it's uh, so fascinating. Can you t- just tell us some more about what it is? Sure. Um, so if you've been programming for a long time, you might not have heard of R because um, R is originally from a statistical analysis background. Uh-huh. So um, it's just like Python, it's like Java, like C, um, but it comes from the statistics field. Uh-huh. So I think bringing this back to IEE, Peter, um, I was looking at a survey recently and I believe R is the sixth most, u- most used programming language right above JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Um, from an IE survey. So um, it's recently oh. become a really popular language. Now, now, much has been written about women in technology, but I wanted to ask about data, math, and statistics-related fields specifically, because that's kind of where our, you know, lies in that in that world of, of st- statistics. Is that still mostly men, or is that also getting better? How is that? Right. I would say um, due to groups like Our Lady Chicago, due to the proliferance of um, sort of more problems, more interesting problems in these fields, um, women are coming to data, math, and statistics related uh, fields, mainly because I think as a woman, I'm very interested in sort of solving a problem. Mm -hmm. I think women are very interested in sort of thinking about problems and being able to use the tools to solve those problems. And Mm -hmm. so my my thoughts on this are if you're going to try to get more women into into data fields, mm-hmm. you want to have really interesting problems. Like, how are you going to uh, deliver social services in a city? How are you going to use data mm-hmm. to solve those problems? Um, those are things that motivate me. Th- those mm. are the things I find really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you start with a problem like that, um, getting women to sort of think about that problem and be like, oh, well, I probably should learn to use R so I can solve that problem and, and sort of do analysis on that problem. I think for me, that's the most compelling thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is so interesting and uh, and good good to hear too. And and uh, now you you told us that you recently graduated or you, you haven't graduated yet. You are going to soon, still a senior in, in college. Um, now, how, how do you feel about gender equality in tech? Um, because I ask because I find it interesting, your perspective you're just starting your career journey. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Sure. I think having um, imp- uh, role models in tech is very, very important, um, especially as a woman. One of the reasons I'm involved in the art community is because on Twitter, there are a number of women who are prominent in the community and talk about their accomplishments and, and all the things that they do. Um, so it's being able to see that they're pushing out all these really cool packages, um, mm. developing, um, speaking, um, being at these conferences is very inspiring to me mm. as a woman um, just starting out. 
Mm-hmm. I think also um, with regards to gender equality, surrounding yourself with um, supportive people no matter what gender mm-hmm. is the most important. So mm-hmm. I'm not trying to um, demonize men or anything like that. I think mm-hmm. um, as long as you have a community that supports you and, and uh, helps you with where you need to go, um, mm-hmm. whether that's, you know, you're a software engineer and you're trying to work at um, a large software company or you're, you're doing research at this academic center, as long as you have... Um, people of both genders who are Mm -hmm. um, supportive of where you want to end up, Mm -hmm. I think is very important. So for example, my professor, he's a a big figure in um, his field. Um, He's just been so phenomenally supportive. Um, For example, for the Our Ladies Meetup, um, we have had support from Microsoft. So Mm -hmm. Adam Hechtman of Microsoft here, um, David Smith, um, they've just been so supportive of our uh, of our work, and so I think um, yep. Adam Adam's been on our show. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm sure he yeah, has. He, he's twi- a big figure here. Twice, yeah, right? he has. <laughs> we, we know Adam, so I hope hope he's listening. Um, that's that's good. Um, so what? Uh, and a great 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 thoughts and perspective. Thank you for for sharing that. And and I, I wanted to ask um, you know about a couple other things because you know our listeners that are maybe not interested in tech or whatever or not into tech, they may see a couple things out there in the media about this because there's so much written about you know gender and women in tech and things so there are a couple of recent um you know news stories and developments and i thought maybe we could touch on those a little bit um Recently, Google um, had a you know a manifesto that was written by James uh, Daymore about how there are biological differences in women that cause a lack of, of women in tech, and it was um, you know met with a lot of um, you know opinions and frustration, and uh, uh, and, and then he was later fired from from Google. I, I wanted to ask you if you've seen this and what what you think about it. You might guess that I'm not completely supportive of the manifesto. Um, yeah. I think it's, I think it's a very complicated issue. Um, mm-hmm. It's one that um, is an old issue, mm-hmm. and I think um, I can understand where he's coming from. I think the manifesto itself is de- uh, sort of representative of problems that are still existent in tech culture. Um, I had a friend who worked at Google this summer um, mm. while this was happening. She was um, doing some very, very good work for them. And I've had a conversation with her and we've talked about it. And even though she was there, she was working, she had um, just a lot of thoughts both ways on the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so she received very good mentorship. She learned a lot. Um, at the same time, um, being a woman in that environment at that time might not have been the best, you know, um, experience for her. Um, but at the same time, I think it's, I, I acknowledge that men might feel that, you know, there's something strange going on. However, I think that just means that we've had, we have to have these conversations. We have Mm -hmm. to still, um, think about how we can make tech a more inclusive place for all. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and, there's a lot you can do. Um, one way I'm trying to address that is having this Our Ladies group, um, mm-hmm. creating uh, a specific environment where if you're learning R, um, you can come and you can sort of be in a friendly environment and, ha- and get mentorship. And that's not saying that we're trying to, um, uh, we're not like, I don't know how to put it well. Um, 
we're we're supporting women, but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean we're bringing down men. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a, that's a good way to say it. Yeah, I I think, um, and it, and it is a complicated issue. And I think uh, having a balanced view on it, trying to empathize and see all sides of where somebody's coming from, but what does this mean? And you know, I know there was a lot of outrage and you know, um, and a lot of pushback on it. So it was uh, something that people might have seen come up in the in the media world, the people reference and kind of a reference point of what's happening in uh, you know women in tech today. Um, fascinating stuff. And so th- thanks for letting us know your, your thoughts on it. And there's another another thing even more recent than that. Um, the New York Times had a, an article recently called Push for Gender Equality in Tech. Some men say it's gone too far. And the article mentioned, um, and I think I'm quoting here, a radical subculture calling for total male separatism in the tech industry. And one of these groups is called uh, MGTO, um, M-G-T-O-W, which stands for men going their own way. And, and many of the men who are in this group are against women in tech equality efforts. And they are younger men who are perhaps as similar to you, just getting out of college or just starting out their careers. Um, how, how do you feel about this? The, the, you know, as you were starting out your tech journey and your career and, you know, just get, getting off to a nice, um, you know, launch pad for, for yourself at this um, stage, knowing that there are people who are similar in age who are doing this and having these thoughts, you know, how, how does that, uh, how, how do you feel about that? Sure. So I, I read the article, um, and frankly, some of the stuff in the article is, is absolutely shocking, um, the way that they think about you know the, the way that they um, conceptualize um, like women in tech. Um, mm-hmm. However, um, I've been fortunate not to run into that type of person in my personal experience. Mm-hmm. Um, all the people I know, um, all the men I know, have been very supportive of what I do. Um, they've been really excited about the work I'm doing with our ladies, with mm-hmm. um, the other things I'm involved with. Um, I think. Uh, being just just talking to your fellow female coworker about um, sort of issues that she's going through, or or um, sort of what it means for her to be in an environment where the dominant um, dominant voice is not maybe yours, mm-hmm. um, is something just really simple that a, a, a guy um, can do. Um, mm-hmm. I think uh, it's it's um, it's probably I, I want to say it's a very small subculture that has mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. views. Um, I haven't personally worked in Silicon Valley. I've been um, in uh, internships where I've been in a woman-only environment, which has mm-hmm. been so nurturing and supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably rare. Um, for example, if I were a software engineer, I would have had a vastly different experience, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, however, um, I think that uh, having those conversations and um, maybe not putting too much stock in, in the guys who are like, Ugh, you know, like this is mm-hmm. like, we are going to be separatist and things um, and still just working towards um, better technology, better, mm-hmm. um, uh, better diversity and, and more inclusiveness in, in all aspects of tech. Um, I think we can keep working on that and sort of work so hard at that, do good work with our ladies, do good work um, mm-hmm. that we sort of make those voices on the periphery, you know, mm-hmm. like we move them out of the dominant conversation. Size matters, size matters, with Kyle Seismankowski. All right, I have to be real quiet. It's 3.45 on Tuesday morning.
and I'm pilfering food and stuff from the GoPro. I'm pretty good at knowing exactly. Uh, I'm pretty good at, at knowing exactly where to step, but I don't want to wake no one up. Last time I tried to do this, I I almost got. Oh, who's that? What the? Who the heck would be knocking around this time of night? See, you can't just do this blind. You mustn't, like, plot your course in the dark. You have to know what you want and where it is before you take it. What was that? Alright. Alright, here we go. And what do I want here? This, I want the nacho cheese to reap. Oh, oh, what was that? There's something in here with me, whatever it is. I... It's gone. Okay, I gotta make this quick. Alright. Right. I got the chips. Next time I list is salsa. Here we go. Alright, let's see now. I need. Let's check the ice box. Uh, really. Oh, oh dice cube! Oh. Ah! My bad. Get off me! Get off me! Oh my, oh, my face! Oh, my beautiful face! This got scratched! Oh. Oh. I gotta get to the closet. Okay, get Alright. I'm in the closet. I think a very small humanoid creature with blades for hands was stabbing me. If I don't make it, this will be my last will and testament. I gotta find a way out of here. It's in here with me. Yeah, I gotta get the light. Come on out, you coward. Here it comes, I can see his teeth shining in the shadows. Oh, it's Dash. Jamie's cat friend. <laughs> you sure are a watchdog here, buddy, aren't you? I'm sorry I scared you. Let's take my chips and salsa and be on my way. Dash, what the fuck is your problem? These are my chips, Dash. You can't have them. You can't have my chips. All right, all right, take the chips. All right. Yoink, those are my chips. You can't have my chips. <laughs> Take your stupid chips, Dash. You foiled my plans for the last time, Dash. Mark my words, you won't defeat me. Mark my words.
This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump says he may quit Puerto Rico as the humanitarian crisis there grows. Trump is served with a deposition alleging sexual assault. Trump blows up Obamacare and threatens NBC's license. A member of Trump's Voter Integrity Commission is arrested for child porn, and Republicans grow worried as reports of Trump's instability grow daily. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 266, October 12th. Trump said he may abandon Puerto Rico amid a staggering humanitarian crisis in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, claiming that Puerto Rico's electrical grid and infrastructure was, quote, a disaster before hurricanes. Trump said recovery workers will not stay forever. Puerto Rico continues to struggle without power and clean water supplies. In related news, the House approved a $36.5 billion aid package to provide hurricane and wildlife relief funding while also bailing out the financially troubled National Flood Insurance Program. That aid package will also fund Puerto Rico recovery efforts. The tab is now more than $50 billion, and lawmakers warn that much more money will still be needed. Trump also threatened to use the federal government's power to license television airwaves to target NBC. That came in response to a report that alleged Trump wanted what amounted to a nearly tenfold increase in the nation's nuclear weapons stockpile, stunning members of his national security team. It was after this meeting that Secretary of State Rex Tillerson reportedly said Trump was a moron. And Trump signed an executive order that would allow a long-disputed type of health insurance to go on the market. The so-called association health plans would undermine the Obamacare markets and allow so-called junk insurance to go on the markets across state lines. Trump also said that the USA could pull out of NAFTA ahead of critical meetings on the 1994 pact. Should the deal collapse, it would inflict damage far beyond Mexico, Canada, and the United States. Hundreds of businesses in all sectors have arranged their North American supply chains around that deal's terms. The USA has pushed for significant changes in the deal that Mexico and Canada say are non-starters. The Trump administration also announced it would withdraw from UNESCO, the United Nations cultural organization citing a so-called anti-Israel bias. This decision was not taken lightly, according to the State Department's statement on Thursday. In addition to an anti-Israel bias, the department cited the need for fundamental reform. UNESCO is best known for its designation of World Heritage Sites and runs missions that include promoting sex education, literacy, clean water, and equality for women. And Cambridge Analytica's work for Trump's campaign is now part of the Russia probe. Steve Bannon had a stake in Cambridge Analytica worth between $1 and $5 million as recently as April of this year. And Russia hijacked Kaspersky Lab antivirus software and turned it into a tool for spying. The software routinely scanned files looking for terms like top secret and classified codenames of U.S. government programs. And Vanity Fair reports that close advisors are describing Trump as unstable, losing a step, and unraveling. Trump reportedly vented to his security chief, quote, I hate everyone in the White House. There are a few exceptions, but I hate them all. John Kelly has tightened the flow of information and visitors to Trump, and there have been recent shouting matches between the two men. Day 267, October 13th. Trump said he will immediately stop the subsidies to health insurance companies that help pay for out-of-pocket costs of low-income people. It is a body blow to Obamacare that could unravel President Barack Obama's signature domestic achievement. There is already a Republican backlash brewing to this move, with the party now fearing they will own the health care issue. And Trump will abide by an international nuclear deal with Iran for now, but ask Congress to attach new caveats that could either strengthen the deal or lead to its dissolution. Trump also will not certify the deal, but will not recommend that Congress immediately bust the terms of the agreement by reimposing U.S. sanctions on Iran. Congress has shown little appetite to take up the issue. And wildfires consumed Northern California this week. At least 41 people are dead, dozens more were injured, and at least 3,500 homes were destroyed. 
40,000 people were evacuated, and over 350,000 acres have burned. Climate change was blamed for the severity of the fires. To date, Trump has not visited or referenced the fires. And CNN reports that the congressional background check chief said he has never seen the level of mistakes Jared Kushner made on his security clearance application. Kushner's initial form did not mention any foreign contacts. His update listed about 100 contacts, but admitted the June 2016 meeting with a Russian lawyer, Trump Jr. and Paul Manafort. And Trump has nominated a climate change skeptic to lead the White House's Environmental Policy Board. Kathleen Hartnett White led a project to, quote, explain the forgotten moral case for fossil fuels. She also claimed that global warming alarmists are misleading the public about carbon dioxide. She called the Obama administration's initiatives a diluted and illegitimate battle against climate change. Trump will also reportedly extend the March 5th DACA deadline if Congress fails to pass legislation before them. There are currently 690,000 young people with DACA status. Day 268, October 14th. A Maryland man arrested this week after authorities said they found child pornography in his cell phone worked for Trump's voter fraud commission. Ronald Williams II of Sweetland was a researcher for the Presidential Advisory Commission on Election Integrity. Williams was on secondment to the commission from the Office of the Special Counsel, an independent federal investigative and prosecutorial agency. His work with the Voting Commission was abruptly terminated this week. And 18 states, including Illinois, filed a lawsuit in federal court in California in response to Trump's gutting of the CDR payments under Obamacare. Trump also tweeted that Democrats, quote, should come to the table, a move rejected out of hand by Democratic leadership as they decried his bullying tactics. Trump also tweeted approval on Saturday for some health stocks falling overnight. Health insurance stocks, which have gone through the roof during the Obamacare years, plunged yesterday after I ended their Dems windfall. Day 269, October 15th. The New Yorker reports that Trump joked that Vice President Mike Pence, quote, wants to hang all gay people. Trump also mocked Pence for his views opposing abortion and LGBTQ rights. Trump jabbed at Pence after a legal scholar told the pair that if the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, many states would legalize abortion anyway. Trump reportedly said to Pence, you see, you've wasted all this time and energy on it, and it's not going to end abortion anyway. And when the meeting began to focus on the question of gay rights, Trump reportedly pointed at Pence, joking, don't ask that guy, he wants to hang them all. Trump's campaign spent more than $1.1 million on legal fees over the last three months, a sharp increase that has coincided with the escalation of investigations into Russian interference in the 2016 election. The spending was revealed in routine reports filed with the Federal Election Commission. Legal fees represented more than 25% of all spending by Trump's campaign. That legal spending was nearly twice as much as the campaign spent during the preceding three months. Day 270, October 16th. Trump today denied allegations of sexual assault made against him before taking office, calling the claims fake news and made-up stuff. Trump told reporters during an impromptu White House Rose Garden press conference, quote, all I can say is it's totally fake news, just fake, and it's disgraceful what happens. Comments came after lawyers for Summer Zervos, a former contestant on Trump's reality show The Apprentice, who accused Trump of groping her in 2007, issued a subpoena to his campaign for any records about, quote, any woman alleging that Donald J. Trump touched her inappropriately. During the election, 11 women accused Trump of sexual harassment after the controversial Access Hollywood tape from 2005 was leaked in the news. The audio of that video caught Trump bragging about groping and kissing women without permission. Trump said on Monday, quote, we're also going to be looking into Representative Tom Marino, the White House's pick to be the nation's next drug czar. That came after CBS and The Washington Post reported on the weekend the lawmaker championed a law that hobbled DEA efforts to combat the abuse of opioids. Said Trump, we're going to look into that report. We're going to take it very seriously because we're going to have a major announcement next week on the drug crisis and on the opioid massive problem. And I want to get that absolutely right. 
Trump also complained that Democrats in Congress are obstructing his efforts on tax reform, health care, and the confirmation of judicial nominees. The Democrats have terrible policy, Trump said. They are very good at it, really, obstruction. Trump also criticized some Republicans in the Senate. There are some Republicans, frankly, that should be ashamed of themselves, adding that most of the senators are really, really great people, but saying that you had a few people who really disappointed us. Trump also offered support to Stephen Bannon, his former advisor, who has declared political war against members of the Republican establishment, including Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who Trump was scheduled to lunch with on Monday. And in an extraordinary move, Jeff Sessions has personally dispatched an experienced federal hate crimes lawyer to Iowa to help prosecute a man charged with murdering a transgender high school student, Kadari Johnson, last year. Justice rarely assigns his lawyers to serve as local prosecutors. By doing so, Sessions is putting the full weight of the Justice Department behind a small city murder case. Day 271, October 17th. NBC is reporting that Paul Manafort's financial ties to a Russian oligarch total around $60 million over the past decades. Newly discovered documents reveal a $26 million loan between a Manafort-linked company and Oleg Deripaska, a billionaire with close ties to the Kremlin. And Trump falsely claimed that Barack Obama and other presidents did not contact the families of American troops killed in the line of duty. That drew unusually bitter and pointed criticism. Trump made the claim while attempting to explain why he had not spoken publicly about the killing of four Green Berets in an ambush in Niger two weeks ago. If you look at President Obama and other presidents, most of them didn't make calls, Trump said. A lot of them didn't make calls. I like to call when it's appropriate. In fact, Obama and all other presidents have long records of meeting with the families of killed service members. Benjamin Rhodes, a former deputy national security advisor to Obama, said this is an outrageous and disrespectful lie by even Trump standards. Also, Obama never attacked a Gold Star family. Another aide called Trump a deranged animal. Political reports that Trump has nominated 50 candidates to lifetime appointments on the federal bench that include prolific bloggers, a man who asserted transgender children were evidence of Satan's plan, and one deemed unqualified by the American Bar Association. Despite the seeming unfitness of this group, most have been allowed confirmation by the GOP. And Tom Marino today withdrew as the administration's drug czar nominee. That followed media reports in the Post and on CBS that revealed how the Pennsylvania Republican championed a law that hobbled federal efforts to combat opioid abuse. And John McCain ripped half-baked spurious nationalism in the United States in an emotional speech after receiving the National Constitution Center's Liberty Medal yesterday. To fear the world we have organized and led for three quarters of a century, to abandon the ideals we have advanced around the globe for the sake of some half-baked spurious nationalism cooked up by people who would rather find scapegoats than solve problems is unpatriotic, said McCain. Day 272, October 18th. A bipartisan deal was reached to stabilize the health insurance markets under the Affordable Care Act and restore critical subsidies to insurers that Trump had cut off two days ago. Trump voiced support for the deal on Tuesday night while insisting he would try again to repeal President Barack Obama's signature health law. The plan would fund the subsidies for two years, a step that would at least provide short-term certainty to insurers. Lamar Alexander said, quote, In my view, this agreement avoids chaos. I don't know a Democrat or Republican who benefits from chaos. And the Associated Press reported that Trump warned John McCain after McCain's caustic speech yesterday, quote, to be careful because at some point I fight back, adding that I'm being very, very, very nice, but at some point I fight back and it won't be pretty. McCain responded, I have faced tougher adversaries. And a federal judge in Hawaii issued a nationwide order freezing most of Trump's third Muslim ban the day before it was to take effect. The order will prevent the Trump administration from stopping travel to the United States indefinitely for most of the countries named in the ban. The Supreme Court is likely to rule on the ban as well. And the NFL will continue to let players kneel or sit during the national anthem without a penalty. The owner's decision is likely to draw criticism from Trump, who has made a habit of claiming the players are disrespecting America and the military, but legal experts felt punishments would not hold up in court. The protests began to draw attention 
to police brutality. And the Russia probe continues. Sean Spicer met with Robert Mueller's team on Monday for an interview that lasted most of the day. Spicer was asked about the firing of former FBI Director James Comey, his statements regarding the fighting, and Trump's meetings with Russian officials, including Sergei Lavrov in the Oval Office. The Senate Intelligence Committee subpoenaed Carter Page. Page previously said he would not cooperate and would invoke his Fifth Amendment rights. The committee also requested documents on Michael Flynn's son. And the EPA issued new guidelines that claim higher radiation levels usually pose no harmful health effects. A 2007 version of the same document prepared in the event of a dirty bomb said there is no level of safe radiation and concluded, quote, the current body of scientific knowledge tells us this. Also, EPA Director Scott Pruitt directed the EPA to stop settling lawsuits with environmental groups behind closed doors, saying the groups have had too much influence on regulation. The practice of sue and settle is used by green groups to push the EPA to speed up regulation on issues such as climate and air and water pollution. And finally, Trump's approval rating is 37%, according to the latest polling, flat with last month. These are the Trump Diaries. Buildings on Air spoke to Anne Julie Rao, a writer for Chicago Magazine and the author of the polemic, Jane Addams is not here to sell your fancy hotel rooms. Rao spoke about how a building based on a champagne bottle would not have flown with a woman who spoke out against alcohol, and how the recent Chicago biennial left many Chicagoans out of the conversation. Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn airs the first Saturday of every month at 2 p.m. All right, welcome back to Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and... Uh we're here in the studio uh, with Anjali Rao. Um, your inaugural Buildings on Air appearance, uh, it's been well overdue, and I'm super <laughs> happy you're here. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you in the studio. We've, we've been chatting for quite a while about um, this, this uh, get, getting on the show to talk about this brief article you wrote for Chicago Magazine, um, Jane Addams is not here to sell your fancy hotel rooms, which I think kind of, it's the, the title almost speaks for itself, but um, you also recently um, put out in Chicago uh, Reader, where does the Chicago Architecture Biennial go next? Um, so I'm, I'm curious to, to chat with you about those couple things. Then we'll be ta- talking with Zach Mortise um, about um, his article in, in City Lab called Is Beige the New Black in Architecture? So if you're uh, uh, going to be listening to this in the podcast version, you can pause your phone and read those two brilliant art- or three brilliant articles. Um, but yeah, Anjali, so Tell, tell us about this Jane Addams business before we launch into Chicago Architecture Biennial. Well, it's funny because um, the Jane Addams business was never really my business. Um, <laughs> and uh, I just, I happened to be on a lot of different press release lists and yeah. uh, was also in a kind of a, a group text situation where someone was making a joke about, like, I'm going to open up a, a hotel and call it the St. Vincent. And, and yeah, anyway, I was like, I don't really know what he's talking about. And I, find, I went and checked my email and got this crazy press release about hotel branding, which I just didn't really care about. And I skimmed it and was like, oh, my gosh, what is this? What is this? Yeah. Um, and then I got on Twitter and kind of raged about it a little bit. Um, yeah. And uh, I just happened to have a friend who's an editor at Chicago Mag. Yeah. And so the, the rundown is that the Hard Rock Hotel – uh, in on the Magnificent Mile mm-hmm. in downtown Chicago is rebranding themselves as the Jane Adams Hotel, the Saint Jane, the Saint Jane. Yes, oh. so she is not. I don't. She's not a saint. Um, so yeah, I mean, I uh, it's it's kind of complicated because I think that the bigger discussion that should be had is like what's going on with the Hard Rock Hard, hard Rock brand. Yeah, like that's like a big deal around the world. There's Hard Rock hotels everywhere. Sure. So uh, that was surprising to me, but then. 
I was kind of like going through my brain, like, what? who's St. Jane? And I studied art history and, and like specialized in pre-1100 Catholic art oh, <laughs> um, no in idea. undergrad. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so, yeah, I was I, I was thinking about it. And like St. Jane, if I remember, was just uh, a nun who built convents for nuns that could not find a place to go anywhere because they were too old or too sick. Yeah. Um, and that was super not the case. Uh, they were talking about Jane Addams. And I mean, it's just one thing to brand your hotel uh, that's in, in a way that's going to matter to locals. Like, you know, yeah. you want you want your, your thing to be accepted um, by the city that it's in. But this was sort of like just one of those mistakes. It was right. one of those like glaring mistakes and errors that I was really – I'm really shocked that they're still kind of pursuing this and they haven't made any comments about, right? you know, uh, naming a hotel after a woman who um, pretty much pioneered sanitary living and, and you know, uh, eight-hour workdays. Right. Uh, and, you know, the welfare of women and children particularly. So, I mean, everyone has been kind of, they were upset about it for a minute. Now, you know, nothing's heard, been heard of since. Right. I'm guessing they're going through with it. So. Yeah. Yeah, well, and it's also especially sort of peculiar and 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 um galling that they they didn't get in touch with the jane adams whole house which is literally just like a, a mile away yeah uh, the kind of organization that still takes on plenty of philanthropic work and sort of uh continues the legacy of of um uh, of, of jane adams and um you know it's like the least that they could do for their boutique hotel is like sort of uh <laughs> talk to the know, executive director to, uh, <laughs> donate some money you yeah. know um um so yeah i i'm 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 curious about it i i i know that the article was was a while ago but yeah i i would I'm, ha- <laughs> I'm happy to talk about it on building on buildings on air just to like um raise a flag on it and also just like it's it's really peculiar the way in which these sorts of um um image the social movement figures become images that become then subsumed into sort of glossing over um a lot of like inequity in the city right and it makes you question like what is the idea what is an authentic chicago experience Mm, um and that's what they're trying to do. This whole brand is saying, like, we want people to come and stay here who want to have an authentic Chicago experience. Right. Um, but to me, like, there's this sort of weird national tension where people think the Chicago experience is one of, like, fear and violence. Right. And then there are people who live here that see that completely opposite, but also understand that Jane Adams is not the person you should pick on for that kind of authentic experience. Sure. Because, I mean, in a lot of ways she fought for equity, but we still live in a world, that, in, a, yeah. in a city that is, that is inherently inequitable. Right. So. Yeah, and I think that's a good transition to the sort of article about um, the Chicago Architecture Biennial that, that you wrote. Um, so we had, you know, two big Chicago Architecture Biennial specials on Buildings on Air. Um, but I, I think now that we're on the other side of it, I'm really excited to to chat about it. Um, and and your your article really sort of posited that like the the biennial has these sort of two souls in this present edition. Um, and there's what's going on um, at the kind of main venue at the cultural center, um, which presumably many of our, our listeners um, 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 in Chicago and, and elsewhere have seen or um, heard about. And, um, you know, that that's, that's very, I don't know how to describe it in a few words. It's also maybe a little unfair because there's like a hundred different architects on display. But um, I think Zach will tell us more 
more about that in a little bit, um, kind of about the way that uh, postmodernism is kind of being rehashed. And, um, you know, you see this very imageable sort of consumable language of like forms and everything. And it has very little relationship to um, social issues by and large. It's not always true. But um, then there's these sort of offsite um, partner events and and um, what 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 are those and, and how does that differ from the sort of main event? What are these two souls that you've outlined? Well, I mean, really, the purpose of the article was to reframe the idea of Chicago's history of architecture as being one that's uh, often traumatic yeah. and um, has had and looking at architecture as a form of trauma. Mm. Um, and how do communities, how have they dealt with it? How are they still dealing with it? Sure. Um, and it's uh, a lot of people look at something like the Chicago fire mm. and they say like, oh, that was a big traumatic incident. And now we have these beautiful buildings because of it. Um, but we're, I'm thinking more of, of things, uh, decisions made by uh, politicians uh, regarding infrastructure, yeah. the, the highway being built and displacing a lot of people. And um, generally speaking, I just think that uh, the biennial with through the lens of make new history, mm. um, they weren't addressing it in in the place that it's in. They weren't really talking about Chicago's traumatic architectural history. And um, a lot of these neighborhood sites, so there are um, five sites uh, outside of the cultural center that are hosting um, their own exhibits that uh, some money came through the Chicago Community Trust mm. um, to fund uh, curators that are local to those sites to create these exhibitions. And um, the subject matter ranges. Uh, Lee Bay at um, the DuSable Museum is, or when people in Chicago DuSable, they he's showing his photographs of the South Side. Um, all the way to we were just chatting about the uh, Puerto Rican Arts and Cultural Center, yeah. um, kind of dealing with the long history of um, ethnic and economic transitions in the neighborhood of Humboldt Park. So there's. A lot of nuances there, but they are really able and given the power and the financial power to discuss um, how architecture has uh, been a place of power for a lot of people that may not be citizens, maybe more politicians. Right. Um, and the moments that um, citizens have been able to kind of uh, realize that they actually have an ability to um, take charge of what their neighborhood looks like. Sure. Yeah, and well, and it's kind of interesting too, you know, when, when the reaction to the biennial has sort of been about how it wasn't sort of meaningfully connected to the communities, but it's almost like people didn't actually go to any of those places. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the, I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, they're looking at the cultural center, which yeah. it's, it's the great irritation of my time uh, working in architecture is that so much time and energy is focused on the loop and what takes place downtown. Yeah. But there are, there are huge communities in Chicago where there are kids under the age of 20 sure. who have never even seen the loop. Right. So to me, it seems a little bit counterintuitive to fo to bring this biennial to a place that so many people are not really connected mm -hmm. to that, that architectural center. Yeah. <laughs> Contra Tiempo spoke to Marco Escalante, a longtime Contra Tiempo writer and cinephile, 
about movies coinciding with the Chicago International Film Festival. He shared his thoughts on two French films showing this year, Lover for a Day and Let the Sunshine In. Contratiempo Radio airs every Sunday at 9 a.m. Marco, llevas varios años reseñando este festival. ¿Cómo lo has visto cambiar? ¿Cuál es el proceso que has visto? ¿Has visto alguna diferencia? ¿Has visto, ¿Lo has visto crecer? Uh, yo no, la verdad que antes iba nada más este, al festival como espectador, ¿no? En los años este, 90 y eh, veía unas dos, tres, cuatro películas, eso era todo. Nunca asistí al festival como crítico, salvo cuando Contratiempo comenzó a, a, a establecer relaciones con el festival. Uh -huh. eh, el festival en realidad este, eh, es este... Eh, si mal no recuerdo, el festival antes se realizaba en diferentes eh, locaciones, ¿no? Y este, una de las, una, uno de los lugares donde se pasaban películas en esa época, creo yo, era, si, no, si mal no recuerdo, eh, de repente estoy en un error, pero eh, creo que era el Facets uh -huh. y el Century 20, 21 del, del, de la Avenida Clark. Sí. Este... Eh, tal vez estoy confundiendo el internacional con el latino, pero bueno. Pero la cosa es de que eh, eh, ahora el festival, eh, no sé por qué razones, eh, tiene su, su base en el cine... Este, ¿Chinchisco? Eh, ah, no, en el River East, okay. eh, que está más pegado al lago, ¿no? en la Illinois, en el downtown, que es, una, es un monstruo, ¿no? tiene como, como 30 salas, creo yo, en el edificio. Tal vez este, se mudaron ahí por razones prácticas para tener las películas en un solo lugar, en un solo espacio y no hacerlo complicado, no lo sé. Pero desde mi punto de vista sería lindo que, 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 que el Festival Internacional, por ejemplo, ayudara al Facets a sobrevivir, porque para mí el Facets Multimedia de la, de la avenida Fullerton y Lashland es a lo largo de la historia aquí en Chicago el mejor cine que ha habido, ¿no? Es un cine maravilloso, ¿no? Y, 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 y lamentablemente es un cine que cada vez que voy a ver una película eh, está casi vacío, ¿no? Eh, ha habido ocasiones donde he visto una película allí completamente solo, el único espectador ahí sentado, ¿no? Eh, creo que fundamentalmente sobreviven de su videoteca, de los videos que venden y alquilan, ¿no? Eh, pero sería linda una conexión entre el Festival Internacional y este, y este cine histórico de Chicago, ¿no? Que realmente es, es este, lo, que, lo que los americanos llaman un landmark. O sea, es este, este, este cine debería sobrevivir porque es históricamente importante, ¿no? Eh, y bueno, eh, el, el, el Festival Internacional de Cine... Eh, eh, siempre ha sido muy generoso con los críticos, ¿no? Porque tienen lo que ellos llaman las sesiones de los screenings. Eh, y allí pasan más o menos un promedio de... Más o menos como unas 20 películas en el, en el plazo de, de tres semanas. Uh -huh. eh, donde los críticos pueden asistir a ver películas, todas las películas que quieran, digamos, este... Eh, y escribir sus pequeñas cápsulas para los periódicos, para los blogs, o, o, o hablar en estaciones radiales como, como Lumpen Radio, así como lo estoy haciendo ahora, ¿no? Muy bien. Pero, eh, eh, bueno, y tiene, eh, es, es, es un festín, ¿no? Y generalmente es curioso, pero se desayuna cine, porque las películas comienzan a las 10 de la mañana, ¿no? Los screenings, uh -huh. eh, y se prolongan hasta las 4 de la tarde, más o menos. Entonces, este... 
eh, es, eh, la, la selección de los screenings siempre es muy buena, siempre cuenta con, con películas e extraordinarias muchas veces. Entonces, este, eh, una de las personas a cargo de los, de los screenings es este Alejandro Riera. Eh, y es la persona con la que siempre hemos contactado en contratiempo para, para lograr este tipo de, de pases, ¿no? Uh -huh. eh, entonces, este, aparte de los screenings, ellos tienen para los críticos este, un sistema uh, de streaming online. Nos dan una lista de películas que podemos ver en línea okay. y nos proporcionan la información de dónde ir y qué password usar para ver estas películas, ¿no? Uh -huh. Entonces, hay una gran cantidad de películas que uno puede ver. O sea, se ¿Cuántas puede... horas ves películas? Eh, yo no veo mucho porque yo, o sea, no, no vivo para el cine, ¿no? Eh, vivo para el cine y la literatura, digamos. Entonces, este, divido mi tiempo más o menos así, ¿no? Entonces, este, los críticos de cine generalmente ven todas, ¿no? O sea, se, se empachan de cine y en el reader, por ejemplo, los críticos del reader escriben sus sus este, reseñas del Festival Internacional, donde mencionan, por ejemplo, unas 20 películas, recomendando unas 20 películas, ¿no? Uh -huh. uh, comienzan sus artículos, this is the best, this is what you can see the, at the festival this year. Entonces, eh, yo no hago eso, ¿no? Generalmente me enfoco en una, dos, tres o cuatro películas nada más, ¿no? Que son las que quiero ver, uh -huh. ¿no? Eh, y... Y bueno, ¿no? Entonces, este... ¿Este eh, año qué viste? Bueno, este año, el festival todavía no comienza. El festival comienza el 12, el 12 de octubre. Entonces, los screenings comienzan antes. Uh -huh. eh, eh, yo es, este, he visto tres películas hasta ahora. Eh, dos de ellas que yo quería ver de todas maneras. Este, eh, eh, dos películas francesas. Una que se llama este, Lover for a Day. Se va, se va a estrenar con ese título aquí en los Estados Unidos, Amante por un día. Y, el otro que se, y la otra película que se llama Let the Sunshine In, que es este, algo así como eh, dejar que la luz entre al Ajá. cuarto, ¿no? dejar que la luz entre al, a la habitación, algo así. no ¿De qué año son? Las dos son del año 2017. O sea, las dos son películas que se han hecho este año. no O sea, eh, son estrenos absolutos. Eh, la tercera es una película japonesa que vi por curiosidad porque conozco al director que se llama Sion Sono, que se llama Tokyo Vampire Hotel, ¿no? Eh, Hotel de vampiros de Tokio o algo así, ¿no? Que es una película marrana, ¿no? Sucia, una película totalmente decadente, ¿no? Pero, okay. pero, pero o sea, si quieres ver una película que, que, que realmente este, supere todos los, los, todo, todos los límites que tú tienes para lo grotesco, es esta película, ¿no? El Tokyo Vampire Hotel. Las dos películas francesas, en cambio, son absolutamente distintas, ¿no? Pertenecen a otro, otro tipo de cine, ¿no? Este... Eh, eh, como te decía más antes, siempre me, ha, siempre me ha gustado que las películas tengan este, ese, ese, contenido, ese contenido profundo, eh, esas alusiones filosóficas, esas alusiones al mundo de la literatura, de la filosofía, de la, de la sociología, de la política y todo eso. ¿no? Siempre me ha gustado eso, buscar eso en las películas y para eso las películas francesas son ideales. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN-LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. 
Lumpin' Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin' Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com. Thank you.